Galatians chapter 6. We have reached the last chapter as we make our way through this letter. And we're in this series called Free, where we're studying this letter to Galatians and how we can know freedom in Christ. If you don't have a Bible, we have black ones in the seat rack in front of you. The Black Bibles, page 813, you can turn to it. If you are just getting used to your Bible, it's about uh, five-sixths of the way back, maybe, uh, in the back section of your Bible, Galatians chapter 6. Now, before we look at this passage, last week we talked about how every Christian faces an inner conflict between the flesh and the spirit, what we are by natural birth and what we are now by supernatural birth, and that this conflict will never go away until heaven. It's something we'll have to always deal with but that God has given us his own Holy Spirit to now live in us who is greater. And we don't, have, we don't have to give in to what we want to do in the flesh. We don't have to live that way anymore. We're free to now be led by the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know if you've noticed the last two verses last week, but let me just read them to you in chapter 5. Verse 25, it says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, Let us not become conceited, superior, pompous, provoking and envying each other. If you're following along, what I hope you'll see is that believing the gospel makes us humble and bold in relationships. Believing the gospel that Jesus Christ and what he has done for us is enough to completely make us not only right with God, but make us new people And bring his Holy Spirit to live in our lives. And believing the gospel makes us humble and bold in relationships. Can I just talk to you about how I think of my life B.C., before Christ? I remember that one of the the stories that kind of typifies my approach to people uh, was that I, I saw people a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times as people to use to get what would make my life better. And so there was this kid, he had this plastic... Uh, gun. It was super cool. This would have been the 60s now, so imagine it's not as cool as some of the things now, but it was cool then. And uh, this plastic gun um, was, it looked like a movie camera. And just with it, you push a couple switches and all of a sudden this barrel would stick out and all of a sudden these noises would go off. And I remember thinking, he showed me this gun. And uh, as we played together, I don't remember how I did it, but I talked him out of his gun. I eventually became the owner of that gun. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I use flattery, I don't know, I, I, you know, but something was wrong. As I look back on that, I cannot say that I was loving. I was using. Then there were other times I remember in school that I would look at certain kids and all I would have for them was disdain. I would notice their flaws. I would spot different things about them. And I would try and call those things out and get a lot of laughs out of that. And then there were other times that I remember just being uh, very conscious that when I was doing something good, I was always hoping that I would get praise for it. I was always hoping that people would think more of me if I did good. Now, that's, that's what the flesh is like. You know, I don't know if you know, but there's a book out now called Good Without God. So what we're going to talk about today, doing good, it's possible to do good without God. And I'm thankful for any virtue there is in the world, friends. I'm not saying, I hope there'll be a lot more bad. No, but it's possible to do good with all different kinds of motivation, all different kinds of reasons that aren't necessarily honoring and glorifying to God. 
And therefore, I saw that I was not humble or bold in my relationships in the way that talked about loving people. I was superior or sometimes inferior in my relationships. So let me explain what I mean. Um, John Stott um, and Tim Keller talk about this. He says this, to provoke is the word prokaleo. It means to challenge someone to a contest. And I, I was immediately back in my, my, my bedroom with my brother when we were kids. I, he and I were always challenging each other to a contest. It's competitive. But the word envy means to want something to rightfully belong to someone else, like a kid's toy, or to want that person not to have that thing. So here's what he says. In this passage we're going to look at today, Paul is talking of two different ways of relating to others. Provoking is the stance of someone who is sure of his or her superiority, looking down on someone perceived to be weaker. Envying is the stance of someone who is conscious of inferiority, looking up at someone they feel is above them. So Paul is saying that both superiority and inferiority are a form of conceit. Both the superior and inferior person are self-absorbed. In both cases, you and I are focusing heavily on how the other person makes us look and feel instead of how we make him or her look and feel. And one of the things, I don't know if you've ever understood this before, but what the Bible is communicating to us is that sin, us living in the flesh, left to ourselves without the supernatural work of God, Sin turns us in on ourselves. And what God does by his grace through the gospel is he turns us outward. And now we can begin to look at people through the eye sockets with a different motivation, a different understanding of ourselves, and it will just change everything. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to set us free in our relationships. A lot of people have relegated Christianity to a set of knowledge or they've made it a whole practice of all these activities. But at its core, Christianity is about relationships. Our relationship with God and our relationship with people and how we relate to each other. And it is possible to do good things. It is possible to have loving actions even without the supernatural work of God. But ultimately, it all has a different motivation even if it's not obvious at first. So, uh, if you would, look at this quote here by Timothy Keller. I think this is profound. Here's what the gospel. The gospel is this. Gospel means good news of God. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Again, I can't convince you of this. If you don't already see that, then it's just, it was pretty evident to me about myself. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. These two things can make us, you know, humble and bold in our relationships. Otherwise, we do things out of conceit. We, we provoke people. We stir them up. We use them. Or we envy people. And we constantly resent them because they have what we don't have. And that kind of thing's going on. But the gospel comes. The good news comes to set us free. And when that happens, friends, it just changes your whole world. It turns you to look outward. And it doesn't mean we always do our relationships perfectly. But as we learned last week, now we can walk by the Spirit. We can practice in our relationships differently by His grace. What a life. And so if you're following along in the notes, 
Here's what I hope you'll see again this morning is that Jesus' spirit, when he's working in us, he works in us a new self-image and motivation. Jesus' spirit works in us a new self-image and motivation. And so we begin to look at people differently. Now when his spirit is working, how does that happen? A lot of people go, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes into my life, does that mean I'm going to like have all these mystical experiences? Not necessarily. When the Holy Spirit comes in my life, does that mean he's going to make me just this unbelievable, knowledgeable, carrying all this kind of knowledge around? Not necessarily. What he will do, though, is he will absolutely impact your relationships. So your motivation to look at people, and how does that work? I've often said this. The Holy Spirit speaks through our thought processes often. Not in audible voices, but across the ticker of our mind, new thoughts will begin to come. We will find ourselves looking at people and beginning to have God's thoughts about them rather than just our own thoughts. And he will prompt us and say, I want you to see this in this person, or I want you to notice this. I want you to do this for this person. You can do this. And we begin to live a whole different way. And so today, what I hope you'll see is that the fruit of his spirit is love. If you're following along, the fruit of his spirit is love. We saw this last week in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 that the work of the flesh is all kinds of selfish junk, all kinds of using, taking, resentful kind of stuff. But the fruit of the Spirit, when he really begins to work, what will start to grow out of our lives will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all relational words. It will change our whole relational world. And that word love is first for a reason, because That is the main thing the Holy Spirit will do in your life. Let me just say this. If you've been a Christian for a long time and you are not learning and growing in your ability to love people, you're still using people all the time, you're still envious of people all the time, then either you're not being led by the Holy Spirit or you're not born again. It's one of those two. And you can know the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is not just for elite people. This is for everyday, ordinary people just like you and me. But he wants to produce this kind of fruit in us, love. And what I hope you'll see is that love, in this passage we're going to see, translates out into doing good to others, but from a different motivation, to do good to others. When you and I love someone, we want their good, we think about their good, and we begin to do good to them instead of selfish things or instead of power things. And that's the kind of work that God wants us to do. And let me just say this, especially some of us men, we may say to ourselves, well, this sounds kind of soft. Let me say something. There's not a man I know who doesn't want to become more loving, who doesn't want to be remembered by his kids for being tenderhearted, for being both firm and gentle when it was appropriate, that knows that they have become men that really are truly able to look at their peers and to look at other people with a kind of God's love in their heart. We all long for that. That's what got lost in the fall. That's what Jesus came to recover. So this is what he wants to do. So what I want to talk to you today about is practicing his love in our relationships. These 10 verses basically show us what happens when we're led by the Spirit instead of becoming conceited. What does it look like in our church family, in our homes, in our personal life? How do we practice his kind of love in our relationships? And he puts his finger on a number of different ways that that'll manifest itself and it'll show up in our lives. So I want to read Galatians 6, 1 through 10 in a minute, but would you pray with me that we can talk about it? Before I ask you to pray, can I just tell you why we need this message? 
We need this message because it's not enough to know this stuff. For you and I to walk out of this building today and love people in our families differently, love people in our workplaces or our schools differently, to love people both inside this church family and outside this church family differently, we are going to need the power of God. We are going to need his kind of motivation. And even with his motivation, we are going to be swimming against the stream, friends, and we're going to get weary in well-doing. And in those moments, it's time for a gut check. And this passage shows us how to stay on course. So let me just pray. Now, Lord, I know that I cannot teach these things apart from the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help me help people. And I pray that I would want people's good and that I would do good by preaching. But more than that, let all of us learn from one another. Show us how this can really take place in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you've got the Bible open, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 6. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you'll see is that the first way we practice his love in our relationships, he says, is restore one caught in a sin, but look to yourself. If you're following along in the notes, restore one who's caught in a sin, but look to yourself. So let me read verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. How does it say, friends, in your translation? Mine says gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So in my notes, in front of the word restore, I wrote the word gently restore. And notice it's the word restore. It's not hammer someone. It's not show them where they're wrong because we're right. It's restore a person gently. God's heart, when a, when a sheep wanders away, is to always try and bring them back, to restore them. It doesn't always happen. But God's heart always is to win some back, someone back. And when that's our motive, it feels completely different when we're challenging or calling people back. I remember when I was in high school, I've told you before, I got away from the Lord for about a year and a half. I was in, a, I was in the wrong relationship. And what happened is it absolutely messed up my relationship with my parents. It absolutely messed up my relationship with my brother and sister and a whole bunch of people in our church family. And I was conceited. In the middle of it, a family friend of ours who would visit from time to time would stop by, and he always had loved me. He'd known me since I was a little boy. And uh, he, he said to me, he said, Jeff, how are things going with the Lord? And I remember telling my parents afterwards, I hate when he asked me that question. You know why? Because they weren't going well. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I'd, get, I'd gotten caught in a pattern of sin where I was away from the Lord. So the simplest little loving question like that made me mad. And I remember that I wanted to try and avoid him and resist him, but this guy was so committed to loving me. One day, he said, would you mind, I know, I know you're uncomfortable, would you mind if we talked? And he and I sat out on some grass, I still remember where I was, and he talked to me about this inappropriate relationship, and he talked to me about a way that I could come back to the Lord, and it, it was the way God used. You know, a lot of us say, you know, God's going to do it all. But God does it through the body of Christ, friends. And when you and I are being led by the Spirit, we will not be able to just watch someone wander off from God and say, oh well, 
or to look down on them with superiority and go, deserves, yeah, that's what they deserve. No, we'll begin instead of superiority inferior, be able to go, God, show me how to be humble, but show me how to be bold in this loving this person. Show me. And even if they reject me, how many of us have done something like that? And years later, someone came back and said, I hated you at the time, but thank you for being faithful. Sometimes we don't always see it. But in our church, let's not let people get away from the Lord, friends. And let's not be proud when we challenge each other. The Bible says, if you think you fall, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Notice the correction there is look to yourself. Why? Because if we don't look to ourselves when we're trying to help someone else, the temptation to fall into the same kind of sin or into pride is always there. We need to be wise and careful and humble. But the second way of practicing his love in our relationships is found in verse 2. And I want to ask you to read that out loud with me. It's listed there in the first grade box of the notes. Let's read it together. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And I'm going to go on in verses 3 through 5. And it says this. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride, good pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. If you're following along, we're told that we need to carry one another's burdens, but also carry your own load, the Bible says. Carry each other's burdens, but carry your own load. This is a really good balance. In the body of Christ, we're going to become conscious of other people that we know who are going through very difficult times. As a pastor, I have watched some of you go through things that are absolutely crushing. I mean, there's times I wonder how you're even still sane. And I don't understand why different things get imparted to different people, why God permits certain things to happen to some people and other people, it doesn't seem to be as heavy. But I do know this, that God says is that part of being the body of Christ is that we need to come alongside of each other and not let those people just carry those burdens all by themselves. It doesn't say carry all of their burden. It says carry it with them. It doesn't say carry it for them, but carry it with them. Carry each other's burden. And in order to do that, you've got to get pretty close. If I saw an elderly person trying to carry a big, heavy thing through an airport, or a little child just absolutely weighed down by a load, wouldn't your heart be moved to want to do something, to come alongside? And when the Holy Spirit's working in your life, that's what's going to happen. Instead of just going, ah, I can't be bothered by that. Oh, man, I already got plenty going on. There's at least this thing where I have to check and say, Lord, show me how maybe I, do you want me to, I'll do that, God. And we, we have to get almost in their shoes. The word understand means to stand under, humbly, to help lift them up. And that's what God wants us to do. And can I just say, Cherry Hills, you have taught me more about this than I could ever possibly explain in one message. Your compassion for people blows me away. And it is an honor to be one of your leaders and learn from you. There are times where you inspire me to think about when my heart is becoming weary or becoming a little jaded, and I see the kind of way you practice this. Now, here's what I'm concerned about. There are some of you that because you still have either a spirit of inferiority or because the gospel hasn't gotten to you yet, 
you are all caught up in carrying other people's loads and you keep carrying them even when the other people go, that's fine, you want to carry it for me? I'll let you carry it. And we've watched when people will ask for help or when we're, we find out about different situations of the church with the benevolence team, sometimes we've got to say to people, look, we're not going to do it all for you, but if we can help in some way, we want to carry some of that load. But we're not doing that so you don't have to carry your own load. See, the word burdens here means heavy weight, but the word load means like a backpack. So every one of us has to take responsibility. Friends, it's not the church's job, it's not everybody else's job to carry our burdens, but it is our job to make sure as we're carrying our responsibility that we can invite other people to carry our loads. And for some of us here, we need to humble ourselves and let other people carry our loads with us. Do you realize that Jesus let someone else carry his cross for a time? Do you realize that Jesus let someone else give to him Do you realize that he asked his disciples to come and pray with him in the garden when he was overwhelmed? Jesus was humble like that, and he says, you and I need to carry each other and let other people carry our burdens with us and not try and do it all by ourselves. But the third thing, he says, is that we need to practice his love in our relationships with our teachers. If you're following along, notice that what this next few verses says is share all good things with your teachers, but test your own actions as well. Share all good things with your teachers, but test your own actions. Let me read verses 6 through 8. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word... So, some of you right now, what's going on? I'm trying to give you instruction, not in a superior way, not an inferior way, but us learning together, instruction in the word, and I'm not the only teacher in this church, there are many, praise God, should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction, corruption, decay. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now when it says, share all good things with your teachers, almost all Bible scholars agree that this word koinonia comes from the idea of pooling your resources. So the idea is, is that when churches are working right, When the Spirit of God is loving through the body of Christ, they will provide for the material needs for the instructors as they provide for the spiritual needs of the church. It's not payment for a service. It's a shared thing. And so let me just say again, and I know I may get choked up, and this is obviously awkward for me to be one of the instructors in the Word talking about sharing good things with the instructors of the Word, but let me say something. I know all of us that are teachers on the staff here And staff members as well, we cannot believe how much you love us. We cannot believe how kind you are to us. We cannot get over how much you do us good. And let me just say one thing. My children love Jesus more readily because of the way you have treated us. And that's a powerful thing. But let me go further than that. It says share all good things. Some of you take time after messages to write one of the teachers. Maybe you do it for a Sunday school teacher, whatever. And over the years, when I've received an encouraging note where someone says, thank you for pointing this out last week. It was helpful. It intersected with my life this way. Sometimes I'll write back in a note, thanks for writing me. And then I'll write Galatians 6.6 down at the bottom. You know why? Because I'm trying to say, you just live that. 
You just shared good things with someone that instructed you in the word, and that's so encouraging to me. You just did a lot of good, and hopefully I did good to you. But that's when love is flowing reciprocally like that. And Paul is just saying, make sure. But he says, look, you can do all kinds of things. Some people are prone to flatter pastors. Some people are prone to do all kinds of things and all kinds of kind things. But their motive is ultimately just to do that so they're in the good graces of the pastor and not necessarily obey God. So he says this. He says, look, remember this. God's not going to be fooled. You may take good care of all your instructors in the word, but if you're not testing your own actions, if you're not looking at what kind of ways you're responding to the Holy Spirit, if you're still sowing to please yourself, it doesn't matter how good you treat the instructors in the word. You're kidding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. But test your own actions and just see, am I actually letting the word of God change my life? Or am I just attending? Am I just saying, hey, good job, pastor. That was awesome. Great, cool. That is not what God means. And that's not loving. That's, that's flattery. So God wants us to care about that. The last way that he mentions is in verse 9 and 10, and it obviously involves two groups of people. So let's read it together from the notes there out loud in the second gray box, verses 9 and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, notice if you're following along in the notes that the way we practice his love in our relationships is that we do good to all people, but the family of believers the most. We do good to all people, but to the family of believers the most. If you look up here at the banners, we talk about this on a regular basis, that the way God is calling us to fight shallow Christianity is to learn how to do three things better and better, and it's going to take a whole lifetime to grow in this. But as we learn to love the Lord because he first loved us, boy, did he do us a lot of good, huh? What he did for us on the cross, what he's opened up in his word, the Holy Spirit, body of Christ. As we love the Lord, he'll move us to love one another. Then he'll also give us a heart to care for people outside our church family. And the churches that are most healthiest are the ones that love each other deeply. And then they love people outside. I've watched families over the years. There are some families that are so overly connected. They're tight with each other. Man, are they tight. In fact, if you try and get inside their family, you marry into their family, forget it. Too tight. They love each other almost in an over-obsessive way. But they don't really care about people outside their family. Then I've watched people, they care about everybody outside their family, but they don't really love each other. And either one of those extremes, and Jesus said, look, love each other first. And that will be a compelling witness in the world. So that when you invite other people, to follow me. They'll know that you not only love each other and you're learning how to practice it, but you actually care about them too. I'll grow your heart size that way when the Holy Spirit leads your life. And that's what he wants us to do. So if you're following along, again, do good to all people, but family of believers the most. And then the next line is, is that his spirit shows us open doors to do good to others with him. His spirit shows us open doors to do good with others with, to others with him. Now, here's the thing. When people hear, do good to all, most of us go, does that mean I have to do it all? Does that mean like I have to like bless every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth? No. The Bible says, as you have opportunity. Jesus once commended a lady who had blessed him by pouring expensive ointment. When people were criticizing her, he said, look, she did what she could. 
She didn't try and do what she couldn't do. She did what she could. You know one of the most liberating things in loving people that'll help you? is for us just to do what we can rather than think we got to do it all. Each day when I get up, say, Lord, there's, if there's something I can do today, show me how to do what I can with the people on my path. Show me, Lord. I love the old Mahala Jackson song. If I can help somebody as I walk along, then my living will not be in vain. And she, that is one of the most incredible songs. And you, know, you and I can help somebody. We don't have to help everybody, but we can help somebody. If we're listening to the Holy Spirit, he'll show us and he'll open doors, windows of opportunity. We'll spot them more. The Holy Spirit will go, notice that situation right there. I know you've been kind of blind to it, Jeff. Notice that situation and we can move towards others. Some of you know that the founder of Salvation Army, William Booth, when he became very elderly, he was no longer able to come to the national conventions, the international conventions, but it was announced that he was going to send a telegram with his vision for the future of the Salvation Army. This was many years ago. And when that telegram came, the place was packed in the convention hall. And the speaker got up and said, I hold here the telegram from William Booth, our founder, of the vision for Salvation Army. And he opened it up and expected to read a long message. It was only one word. Others. That was the vision. That's God's vision. Others. Do good to others. Don't just think about yourself. And man, God wants to turn us inside out. So how do we do this, Jeff? Please, tell me how we do this. If you turn your notes over on the back. A lot of times we think it's got to be big and massive and stuff. But most of the time, Jesus said it's giving a cup of cold water in my name. It's the little things that make a big difference. And so I've listed them there. A word, a look, a touch, a gift, and a prayer. I could say so many things. Some of you, as you walk out of here today, God may be prompting you to write a word. A word of apology, a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, a word of something, but a humble word that's meant to do someone good. You may speak it, you may write it, you may text it, you may email it, but God is urging you to do something good with a word. And some of us have been set back on our feet with a word. A look. How many of us know the power of a look. My dad often told this story that when he was in high school, went through a very difficult time in high school where a bunch of people decided to just exclude him. But there was one gal in the school. It wasn't anything romantic, but every day she smiled at him for two years. He'll never forget that look. When you have someone take you seriously, when you have someone look you in the eye and acknowledge you and show that they really are trying to track with you, and feel with you. It is huge. But then there's a touch. And I know that we've gotten this all polluted in our culture, and I feel terrible about that, and I've written a disclaimer. But I remember years ago when I was trying to figure out what God wanted me to do, and I didn't know I was supposed to be a pastor, and I was sitting in a church service about the middle of the row right there, and uh, as one of the leaders walked back down after communion had been served, this guy, I don't even think he knew me, some way he put his hand on my shoulder as he walked by. It was more of a brush because they were walking by. The moment that guy touched me, the moment that man put his hand on my shoulder, my load got just a little lighter. It didn't go away, but I had the sense God is with you. You can do this. And he did me a lot of good. He's in heaven now. I will never forget that he did that. And then a gift that can be meals, home repairs, child care, transportation, gift cards, you name it. 
but some of you are really, you're a tangible person like this, and you've lifted people up this way, a prayer. In our church, we're learning more and more to just gather around someone, huddle around them and say, is it okay if I just pray with you right now? I'm not talking about embarrassing anyone or being super weird and super lengthy. I'm talking about just praying, saying, God, I don't know exactly what this friend needs, but would you please help them? Please give them what they need and show us how we can come alongside this friend. And I have just seen so much power. See, in the past, people thought that's what pastors and priests do. But we are priests to one another. We are to carry each other's burdens, and watching you and I grow in that has been awesome. So if you turn back to the front page, the real issue is not... Do we love by doing good? I think most of us know this. I think the challenge is, how do we not become weary in doing this? How do we not just say, I I, I quit? Years ago, when I was being mentored by Jack Hayford out in California, I remember he told a story about how he struggled with this. He said that when he first got married to his wife, he married into a family that had, he had a brother-in-law named Fred. And Fred just never seemed to be that open, that receptive to all of his efforts to try and love Fred. You know, he'd say, you know, how's it going, Fred? And say, oh, okay, like that. No enthusiasm back, no reciprocity. And so he just found himself after so many different family gatherings. He says, I don't remember when it happened, but somewhere along the way, I decided I'm done with Fred. I'm done loving Fred. It is not worth it. I, I, I see nothing coming back. He's a pastor. And Jack said that one day he walked into his kitchen and he saw there on the the kitchen table a card that was open so it wasn't private. And it was from his niece to his daughter. And he opened it up and it read this. He said, thank you so much for continuing to pray for my dad, Fred. I know he doesn't seem like he's responding much to God, but thank you for not giving up. Jack Hayford saw that card. He almost fell on his knees. He was so cut to the heart. He had given up on Fred because he wasn't getting anything back. And the Spirit of God was saying, I want you to love Fred even if he never gives you anything back. And don't lose heart. Keep loving Fred. And he said, I began to pray for Fred with renewed energy. God filled me with a brand new, fresh love for Fred that was greater than my own. And he said, a few Months later, Fred called our family one night and said, this morning, I went to church and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I wanted to call you first because you have loved me even when I was difficult to love. We can become weary in well-doing. If you, if you wonder why Jesus talks about this, we can become weary because when evil seems to be winning, when evil seems to be winning, we go, what difference does it make? My act of loving is just one drop in the middle of this huge ocean. What difference is that going to make? And you know, notice this verse, Matthew 24, 12, what he says here. Let's read it together. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Maybe you're here today and you've given up on someone that the Lord still wants you to love. Maybe you're here today and because you have been rejected or because you have been hurt so many times, maybe even by someone in the church, your love has gone cold. You have no desire to wish good for that person or to do them good. Do not become weary in well-doing. The Holy Spirit's still working in your life. And here's what I hope you'll see if you're following along. At the proper time, 
God says we'll reap a harvest, we'll reap a good crop if we do not give up. We may not see it on this side of heaven, we may not see it till the next side of heaven, but something will begin to grow in us that will be better than if we give up. Something of character and Jesus' character will begin to be there. Something of his humility, something of his perseverance and tenacious love will begin to develop in our life. Do not lose heart, he says. Keep a bigger perspective. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. And on that day, when we stand before the Lord, we will not regret that we did good with his help. We will not. So where is this landing in your life? Years ago, I read this story about John. It gave me a dream of what I pray our church will be like. Ann Kimmel, who was a youth leader in her church, writes this. You just can't stop love. It crushes barriers. It breaks and builds bridges. It finds a way through. It never gives up. It's hard work. It listens. It walks 10 extra miles. It's something you do. Jesus did it for me. One kid, his name was John, walked around with his head down all the time. He never looked you in the eye, and if you ever got close to him, he shuddered. One day, John wasn't there, and I said to the kids, let's try an experiment. Let's really love John. I mean, really love him, as we've never loved anyone before. Let's just see what love can do for John. He was the most inhibited, insecure kid I'd ever seen in my life. From that moment on, we asked Jesus to help us love John. Every time he came into a room, everyone wanted to sit by John. We sent him letters. We wrote notes during the week. We stopped by to buy him a Coke. After six months of loving John, the kids started to get tired. Gee, Ann, you don't know what it's like to love John. You call him at home to see how his week is going, and he says, hmm, okay. John, you say, I've really been thinking of you, and I love you, and he just grunts. But I'll never forget the morning. We were all gathered together, and suddenly, John smiled. We had never seen John smile. He really smiled. And two weeks later, when he laughed out loud, it nearly blew our minds. No one wanted John to notice, but they were all trying to signal me. Yet I noticed John laughed. He really laughed. Three weeks later, his mother, who was a non-Christian, the whole family was non-Christian, called me and said, Ann, last weekend we were in the mountains camping. John is 16, and I haven't seen him cry since he was five. But he started to cry and bawl and sob. And after four hours, I was almost frantic. And I asked him why he was crying like this. All he could say over and over was, I'm such a failure, Mom. I am such a flop. And finally, I said, it's that church you're going to. They're not treating you right. And he said it as he shook his head, no, no. It's my only hope, Mom. They love me over there. And she said, it seemed like the minute he said that, the minute he came out and shared that with me, he began to dry his tears. And he straightened his back, and he held his head up, and it's strange, he's never been the same since. And in the group, he began to laugh a lot. He began to share in conversational prayers when we prayed. He began to bring a friend on Sunday and two friends the next Sunday, and he became the best softball player we ever had. For the first time in his life, he had the courage to play ball. Love changed John's life. Just love. You can do one of two things in your world. You can build a wall or you can build a bridge to every person you meet.
I'm out to build bridges. Are you, she writes. When the Holy Spirit's working in our life, we will build bridges. And we will not become weary in doing that. Because he will renew our strength. And so now, I just want to ask you one question. As you, as, you know, this is how we apply it. Could you pray this? Are you free to love more humbly and boldly? Jesus, show me one way I can practice loving one person this week. And I could give you all kinds of Bible verses. Jesus said, even love your enemies and do good to them that hate you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone in this church. Maybe it's someone at work. But who's one person the Holy Spirit may be leading you to? And he says, I'll show you. Use one of these five ways in the back of the notes. Look for a way. Love them. Do good to them. Don't just think thoughts. Do good to them. And so if we're going to do that, we're going to need fresh strength. And the Holy Spirit, you know what he mainly does? He points us back to the beauty of Jesus and God our Father. And as we worship him, we realize that we are more loved than we ever dared dream. And because we're loved, we can love. So let's just bask in the greatness of God and worship him now. Why don't we stand up together? We're just going to lift our voices to the Lord and do exactly what Jeff said.